0: Welcome, listeners, to the latest episode of The A to Z of Tech. Today, we are talking about H for Hacking. I'm Hugo from PwC's Disruption Team, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Louise, who I think is champing at the bit for this episode.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Hugo. I am delighted to say that we are joined in the studio by Stuart Criddle, who leads PwC's Ethical Hacking Practice, and Ethan Thomas from the National Crime Agency, who helps win their Cybercrime Prevent Programme. Thank you both so much for joining us in the studio.
2: No worries. It's good to be here.
1: So as some of our listeners may know, my day job is actually in cybersecurity, so I am particularly excited to have you both here to explore some of the different aspects of hacking. In particular, I think it's actually really important that we can hopefully bring some different perspectives to what our audience may traditionally associate with what we would call hacking, which is probably best described as an intrusion onto a computer or a network. For those of you who might want to do a little bit of reading around the subject, particularly around cyber espionage and hacking, one of the earliest documented cases of this kind of activity is actually from the late 1990s and is known in true James Bond style as Moonlight Maze. It's really worth having a look into um, if that's your cup of tea. So one thing that interests me is that cybersecurity is often described in pretty technical terms but ultimately, it's actually down to the human involvement in this kind of activity. So, today we're going to be focusing, hopefully, on the human aspect behind hacking.
0: So, Ethan, we mentioned in the introduction that you're involved in the NCA's Cyber Prevent programme. Indeed. Give us the lowdown on Prevent. Where did it come from? How has the government's approach to cybercrime and hacking evolved over the years?
3: Yeah so the uh the, the prevent program itself is actually a, a strategy which was introduced in the 2013 copy of the serious and organised crime strategy so that strategy basically dictated that you had to have a what's called a 4p approach uh, when tackling any sort of crime type that's either serious or organised most people associate prevent with counter terrorism, but actually, by the nature of the document, prevent should be used in every single crime type, whether it be complex, organised, and that could be cyber, drugs related, firearms, things like that. How we sort of got into cyber and where we are at the moment in the NCA is that from the crossover from the serious organised and crime agency into the national crime agency we went from a more cyber enabled approach which is a uh, term coined by the government the premise of it is basically a, a crime that can be adapted or improved by use of technology as opposed to uh, being created as a result of technology uh, which would be the definition of a cyber dependent crime so we at the nca look primarily at the cyber dependent crimes that would be hacking, uh, DDoSing and all these other sort of techniques that involve two computers or networks uh, in criminality. Fascinating.
1: So, Ethan, we might traditionally associate hacking with teenagers sitting in a bedroom. Who actually are the hackers or the perpetrators of this kind of activity that you're dealing with?
3: Well the truth is they come from all walks of life and it depends on the particular types of individuals that you're looking at. You may find some of the more uh, advanced and career criminals are going to be older individuals and they may not be necessarily in the UK. Um, But when we're looking at low-level cyber criminals we are primarily looking at uh, teenagers is, is what we're seeing and for the most part these are also male. Usually at the lowest levels they're, they're more motivated by the, the sort of social aspects of it uh, which goes against the sort of stereotype of it being quite an anti crime type. It will be around peer recognition, it will be around challenge and seeing whether they can overcome it and if there is financial profit involved in it usually this is just a byproduct as opposed to the, uh, the primary motivation. But again at a a low level
1: interesting so rather than it being financially motivated actually at this lower level it tends to be more around um, reputation or kind of building a building a rep online and then actually that means it's more of a collaborative process as well potentially so where do hackers meet as it were
3: obviously I'm going to have to say online Um, (laughs) (laughs) there are conventions but predominantly um, they do communicate online but there there are a few different ways uh, that someone, uh, what we've seen, different pathways into cyber criminality from a, a young or inexperienced sort of position. So one of the routes that we've seen quite frequently is the involvement of video games. Now I'm going to pause there because obviously I'm, I realize that video games have got quite a bad rap when it comes to uh, involvement in crime and violent crime and stuff like that. Um, this is this is not that sort of correlation to it. This is the fact that uh, some of the high-profile individuals that we've uh, arrested or been involved in the prosecution of, uh, when we go and talk to them in our debrief program uh, to try and find out actually how did they get involved in cyber criminality, we ask them from you know their very first interest in tech and computing. All the way up until their arrest and prosecution and what we found was there was a quite a big correlation between individuals uh, getting involved in video games but not how most people would usually around the uh, they try to understand it and they're more interested in the back end of it and how it works and how they can make it work uh, and modifying the content and when they combine this with more of a a deviant attitude towards it. Um, when I say deviant, I mean there are some video games companies out there that actively promote modification of their game content, um, but again, there are some that don't. Now, this doesn't strictly necessarily fall into a criminal nature. Um, however, when it comes to unauthorized modifications, uh, that's when you know those two pairings come together, and there's potential that they could start sliding down this this pathway into serious and organised criminality.
0: Interesting. So I guess you can make the distinction between a video game and then hacking, for example, a government's defence systems. Um, so yes. would you say that it's not always straightforward to people know what's what's legal or what's right and what's illegal?
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's, the fact is, is this all seems to be different aspects of grey. There are very much Red lines as to where the law and the legislation stands. The problem is, is that this information isn't perpetuated around the, the environments that these individuals are learning in, whether that be forums online or communities or, or different servers or uh, communications relays and chats. Let alone those in places, the wider society isn't necessarily aware. I mean, I know before I got into this area of law and crime, I wasn't necessarily sure exactly where the, the line stood. And so it's hard to expect these individuals when they are so just avidly interested in what they're doing uh, to stop and think, actually, at what point have I crossed the line, so to speak? So we do a lot of education around that and try and realign some of the misinformation that goes out there into these communities, one of which being that, say, whether you hack a company entirely depends on what your purpose or intention was for doing to that company. The problem is, is that that's not necessarily true, and that falls into this sort of grey hat area, as opposed to be strictly legal, because ultimately, unless you have the full and unequivocal consent to what you're doing from the company or individuals involved, that could potentially land you uh, a criminal record.
0: Interesting. And when we talk about the the motivation, not necessarily being financial or to achieve perhaps um, you know, malicious political uh, gains. Um, so how do you deal with that in practice? So for law enforcement purposes, how do you distinguish between someone who actually is a malicious hacker, someone who's doing it just for the intellectual challenge, mm-hmm. or someone who's doing it maybe as, as, as an act of hacktivism, actually with some kind of noble goal in in, in mind, mm-hmm. um, but who's doing something which narrowly interpreted as
3: criminal? Of course. So in regards to what I would call a career criminal or someone that's intending to do it on purpose um, for a particular purpose of either malice or financial gain. That's normal law enforcement. It's very easy to identify these individuals. Uh, One of my colleagues amusingly said, you know, if you give me someone's computer, I can give you their soul. And so it's it's quite easy to see from some of their actions what their sort of uh, intentions were with, say, if they've taken data and then they've gone on to try and sell it. it. It becomes very obvious as to what they were trying to do. Now, with the individuals that I was mentioning before, the low-level individuals that are trying to do it for challenge and peer recognition, again, this becomes quite evident. And uh, What is very unusual in uh, law enforcement is that someone is actively interested in trying to tell you what they did um, because they may not necessarily realise it's illegal, they may realise it's a grey area, but when you sort of talk to them and say, look, what happened, what did you do? uh they, they come out with it bursting with pride, um <laughs> not necessarily realising that actually they're not allowed to do that. But this this is good. When you've got that open communication going, this is when we can actually talk to them and say, well, did you realize this is what could happen? And that's when we can start pushing them into this prevent style programme where, you know, their their intentions weren't malicious. Now with hacktivism, that's a touchy subject. So what the truth is, is the law is very black and white. And whilst there is sort of tiny, tiny gray areas in it, um, when we start looking at hacktivism and things like this, where there may be proportions of society that may support what they're doing, they may feel it's morally justified. The difference is, is that actually there is a line of the law and you have made an informed choice. You've realized that what you were doing was illegal and you've accepted the risks and the consequences that come with it. Should you get caught? Now, that doesn't mean we don't work with them, but it does mean that actually it's a different position to the people that are unaware of the consequences of their actions and are just trying to better themselves, albeit in an unregulated way.
1: So how does PREVENT engage with those type of individuals who are operating in that grey area, perhaps not aware of the implications of what they're doing? I know you've mentioned education already, Mm -hmm. but do you find, for example, that traditional crime and punishment methods work?
3: Unfortunately not with this crime type. There is a slight issue in the sort of cyber industry in that if someone is, has a criminal record for computer misuse act, it's often very hard for them to get into positions and roles in which they can achieve a vetting status, which is very important for a lot of companies that deal with large contracts and, and governments because people ultimately want to know that the people that are inside their systems are trustworthy. And that is a red flag for some individuals. Now, the problem is if you do go down that route and criminalize them, that is the traditional law enforcement way of dealing with them. The problem is, in this particular instance, with some of the individuals that I've mentioned, it's not the right thing to do, because ultimately what you are doing is you are locking them out from an industry in which they're passionate and going to develop anyway. So ultimately, what are they going to do? They're going to utilise those skills anyway for any other purpose, but again, not in an environment which is looking out for their best interests. So this is why we have this Prevent programme and how it's manifested, because actually we've got a double bonus here, where we can actually stop these individuals from going into Serious and organised crime and becoming a real issue to uh, the economic viability of not just our country but other countries as well. But also we can put them into the white side of things and actually push people into the, uh, the cyber skills gap and not isolate them in the process of that.
0: Interesting. So on that note, what do you think that businesses can do to support the NCA's work and also show people that there are other career options out there which are as interesting, but potentially, well, certainly legitimate and potentially, potentially more lucrative?
3: Well, it's a good question. Truthfully, whilst we're dealing with this purely from a law enforcement perspective, this is a societal change that needs to happen. The future of these skills need to be sort of embraced. And the truth is, is that a lot of these individuals get involved with criminality in the first place because they haven't been given the right education along the way that you may have had in a offline crime type. So from a very young age, you would have heard police sirens and, you know, your parents would have told you that's the police, you do anything wrong, they'll come and get you. You know, if you threw a brick at a window, you'd have the house owner outside probably talking to you pretty quickly, calling the police. Unfortunately, with cyber, it's slightly different where for the most part, it is a generational gap with information and awareness of technology the parents may not necessarily be aware that the individual might be doing things online that would be the the cyber equivalent of uh, like criminal damage or or things like this Uh, they're just happy that their their kid is sort of in safe enjoying what they're doing on the computer seems to be pretty good at it so they they leave them to develop and that's you know, quite an understandable position to take. The problem is, is that these individuals are developing an unregulated environment in which they can't distinguish between what they should and should not do under the letter of the law. And the individuals in, say, the forums that they may be communicating won't be talking about, "Oh, are you sure that you can do that? Or isn't that illegal? Or those aren't the conversations that that are going on in the environments." Yeah. Uh-uh.
1: So I think one final question from me is what does Prevent's activity actually look like? So, for example, I've heard about Offender Intervention Day. So I know that's something that PwC has participated in in the past. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what Prevent actually does?
3: Of course. So whilst I'm talking about the education side of it and, you know, the importance of signposting into the industry and things like this, we do have, we are, at the end of the day, law enforcement Um, And so we have tactical activity on individuals who are committing cybercrime throughout the UK. So we've had hundreds of individuals visited by what we call cease and desist. And this may be they've committed low-level cybercrimes within their community. It may be that they've bought criminal tools or started engaging in environments which are explicitly criminal. And these individuals may think that they are anonymized by the fact that they might be using proxies or VPNs. But nevertheless, what we do is we actually visit the house, hand them a notice and say, we're aware of what you've been doing. We give them information, the IP addresses, how many times they've attacked something, you know, what email addresses they're using, PayPal's, all that sort of stuff. Even, you know, Bitcoin wallets and things. Just to say, look, we're not here, snoop around, we know you've done this and this is your opportunity. We do these cease and desist, and as I say, there's been hundreds. And from these, uh, we'll identify individuals. There's more of a, a process around it that involves educating the individuals. So when we are talking to them and possibly parents We're trying to identify whether there are any education or knowledge gaps so that we can provide them with that information to hopefully discourage them from engaging in criminality in the future. Now, some of these individuals will be rather technically advanced. Some won't, some will. From the ones that are technically advanced and do, as we assess, pose a a high risk to either re-offending or if they do offend, then it could potentially cause catastrophic damage. We invite them to a uh, intervention workshop, we call it. And this workshop runs over one day on a Saturday, usually, so as to not interact with school and it involves various aspects of the private sector. It involves people from education, people from law enforcement, people from legal backgrounds, all sort of come together collaboratively to give them the education and the information they need to basically excel in the cybersecurity industry or industry of their choice. But the important part of it is that throughout it is reinforced of legislation, online social responsibility, ethics, all these sort of things, and ultimately what it acts as is a singular point of no return. So that if they do go on to commit crime, we will go to the judge and we'll say, here's the cease and desist notice. They knew what they were doing was wrong. Here's the attendance logs that say they attended this day here's the content, and suddenly if there are any mitigations for those individuals, they'll be completely wiped out by the fact that they knowingly and made an informed choice to continue into criminality, even after they'll give an opportunity to not.
1: Thank you, Ethan. That's been really insightful and I think really flags that importance of both the awareness and educational piece, being married with the legislative and um, law enforcement as well to, to really run that message home. Thank you. And I think as well, that was a lovely segue into our next guest. So as we mentioned in the intro, Stuart leads PwC's ethical hacking team. So thank you again for joining us. We've obviously been talking about the malicious side of hacking. How can hacking be ethical?
2: So as Ethan said, if you've got the, the full and informed consent of the system owner, then nothing is illegal at that point, which is great fun. So... Um, I'm lucky to have managed to spend 20 years of my career breaking into systems completely legally. and It's an enjoyable thing to do. It's very useful for our customers to be able to share a white hat view of the world, otherwise they may get gained from a black hat type of attack. If they're getting services from professional companies to expose the vulnerabilities they have in advance, they can fix them, they can do something proactive, they can try and make themselves less vulnerable. So a lot of the, the lower end of people getting into this kind of space, they're not massively skilled, they're not particularly high tech some of the attacks. You can download a lot of automated tools that will do a lot of damage quite quickly without really understanding quite often what you're doing. But that would be referred to quite often within the sort of uh, the ethical hacking team as the low-hanging fruit, I guess, where the, the stuff that just shouldn't be there. Nobody is ever invulnerable in technology terms as well as in other areas of life. But we will do um, what we can within our team to make sure that people are as difficult to break into as possible and to raise that bar to the point where, for example, your likely enemies are state-level enemies at that point, and then things get quite difficult. So... We have a range of services um, looking at people's websites, internal networks. We'll conduct simulated red team attacks. So we will try and pretend to be some of the types of guys that uh, Ethan talks about arresting. We will simulate the actions with help from your threat intelligence team, uh, trying to make it as real-world as possible, look at what's being done, uh, and then try and simulate that so that um, hopefully our customers then get a good chance of being able to withstand some of the attacks that are coming their way. Uh, and we will we'll break into as I say, computer systems or hardware or software or wherever we think the value is within a customer's organisation and that will depend on the type of company they are as to where that value is. Sometimes it will be physical assets, sometimes it will be intellectual property. Uh, it might be the the software and the source code that they're writing which might be interesting to attackers from a, a range of perspectives, both from from theft or reuse. Sometimes source code gets stolen so that it can be used to further other, other attacks, for example. So, yeah, so we have a range of services that we, that we work on that basically to try and make our customers more secure so they
0: are harder to break into.
1: So you're doing the job before the bad guys get there, basically?
0: That's the plan, yeah. <laughs> That's the plan. And Stuart, so tell us about your journey to where you are today. So I,
2: I was fortunate, I guess, to grow up in a time um, when technology was really landing in schools particularly uh, and I guess I was also fortunate that the teachers at the time knew very little about the technology so they were actually very happy to share um, responsibility for looking after that that kit and running those networks with people like me. Um, we actually knew more than they did and they were very happy for the help so it was fantastic. We got we got to learn how kit worked and as most small children will tell you, you find out what's inside something by taking it apart. So. We spent a lot of time taking things apart, and putting them back together again and seeing if it still worked afterwards. And it was, it was fun. And then when I, I did a degree in electronics, got into software and technology via, via that route, I got known as one of the new graduates who could do the internet thing because it was relatively early days in, in corporate space at that time. And somebody in the security team at that point said, can you test whether things are secure or not? It's like, that sounds like legal hacking. I'm like, yes. <laughs> well, I was very willing to help at that point. It was, a, it was a great thing. So through the education path that I'd taken, we'd looked at vulnerabilities in software systems already and were able to spot them. And it was a case of taking that kind of knowledge and applying it into a real-world scenario. So, uh, But as I say, I was fortunate to get in very early um, in, in the world. Where ethical hacking was only really being sort of thought about when I sort of almost stumbled into it, I guess, but I've been very lucky to be able to build teams doing just that for quite a long time now, it's a it's an interesting career choice.
0: And so your background or your, your education is in electronics, a lot of people have studied computer science, but are those typically the qualifications you would look for in new recruits? Are so coming to a firm like PwC?
2: So the, the types of recruits we're taking in at the moment are um, obviously those that have got experience in their careers already. So we're taking in quite a lot of senior people. It's a, uh, as Ethan mentioned, it's a, it's a very sought after uh, market in terms of skills at the moment. Hence, if you can get anybody with those skills and push them into the right path. That's great equally we take people um onto our, our formal training program with almost no skills at all in specifically in cyber but we do look for people that have got generally a sort of a science technology engineering math type background where they are happy working with technology and understand how coding algorithms work at a conceptual level. Um, it's, it is is a fairly technical career choice, I'll be honest. So we generally try and take people from a technical technical type background. But this year for our graduate intake, we've taken people with psychology degrees, duology degrees, as well as the, the more traditional computer science, physics, maths, electronics.
1: So you mentioned that obviously ethical hacking is the the good guys finding the vulnerabilities before the bad guys do and helping clients kind of solve those problems and patch those those gaps. Can you share any stories of particularly interesting projects you've worked on?
2: I guess there's a, there's, a, there's a wide range of things that we do. Things like driving up to buildings late at night with wireless access points sticking out of sunroofs of cars and pointing them at buildings. Uh, we'll we'll go into computer networks and look at what's happening inside buildings. So I think, in terms of interesting stories, I guess the, the the biggest issue that we see is sometimes how vulnerable people are. I've got no idea. So there have been too many times with with our customers, even in the financial services space, where within an hour I've had to go knock on someone's door and say, "Can I have a quiet chat in your office, please?" Because you are really exposed to the kind of low-level attacks even that Ethan was describing
0: earlier. So I think we're aware of the human element in security is key and human fallibility as well. So how would you go about testing physical security as well as digital security in an organization?
2: so the the human element is a fascinating part of of the the compromise chain that we will go after uh, ncsc the the government organization that does a lot of research in public space here did some research a couple of years ago into the phishing attacks, for example, where they proved that it was around about eleven people needed to be targeted before your chance of someone clicking on a, a malicious link was effectively one, so at that point you 're guaranteed somebody will click on the link that you sent them then it's down to how well protected their desktops are uh, and how good your payload is, so the piece of software that you send in to try and attack the systems can effectively compromise them. Um, So it's always the human element that is the weakest link. It's not always the route in, but it's often the easiest
0: route in. Um, Ethan, I'd like to bring you back into the discussion. So do you think that ethical hacking is one of the potential routes that can show hackers that there are healthier alternatives out there?
3: Absolutely. I mean. It was alluded to earlier by Stuart, but, you know, this this is a relatively new industry. For the most part, it hasn't been very well signposted. Um, a lot of people did fall into it. The problem nowadays is that from those those older days, there is that perpetuated myth that you have to kind of go the dark route to actually know what you're doing. Um, this is less and less so. Uh, there's actual degrees now dedicated to uh, pen testing and, and cybersecurity. security. And uh, apart from that, if formal education isn't the right route for some individuals, then there's masses of apprenticeships, uh, you know, intern schemes.
0: And maybe an open question to you both. Um, so what comes next? So what are the big shifts that we're going to see in the future, whether it's in terms of uh, enforcement or in terms of new technology that's really going to impact hacking? So. For example, is the the announcement of so-called quantum supremacy is that going to have a material impact on on hacking? I see you both laughing there. So, is, Stuart, why don't you go, go for that first? Quantum supremacy is a is a fascinating <laughs> answer. It's a great so term, the, at least
2: it, it is. And I think it, in terms of the, of the the things that we're going to see changing within sort of uh, later my my working career, potentially, quantum is definitely one of those things that, that's that's coming along. I fear it may be a little bit like IP6 and that it's been promised for 20 years and we've yet to see the reality of it.
0: It's always five years away.
2: It is always five years away. Um, 15 years ago, somebody told me that my career would cease to exist in two years' time because i would be automated out of existence. All that has really happened is that the market for cyber staff has gone the other way because you can never remove the human element, both from a consultancy and testing point of view or from the, from the attack side. I think things that are going to change. I think the the rise in artificial intelligence making decisions for us is going to be a big thing, both from a defensive perspective, um, where you're looking at more AI protecting networks and looking for anomalies, trying to find the things that are that are happening in um, so sort of the, the the bad side of the space. Um, equally, from our point of view, simulating some of these attacks, we're working against those technologies. So we we are in a combative combative situation with some of this AI that's coming along. Indeed,
0: yeah. And Ethan, what's your take?
3: Well, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, the, uh, the technology is getting better and better and more and more powerful. And when we start bringing quantum supremacy into the mix, that is, uh, well, that'll be very interesting trying to prevent. But the um, what we're seeing more and more on the law enforcement side is actually blended crime types and individuals that are taking on this technological advantage into very traditional organized crime groups and almost amplifying the effects of it. So I think going forward in law enforcement, cyber is going to become integral to the, the toolkit of every single investigator, not just those that are specialised in sort of some of the high-end um, techniques that, that we are. Um, yeah, it's going to be something to watch out for.
1: So just to do a bit of jargon busting there, quantum supremacy is obviously a fairly large topic, so one that we might return to later in the alphabet. But really, it's the potential ability of computing devices to solve problems that classical computers really can't.
0: So in technology circles generally, there's a massive gender imbalance. Is hacking any different?
3: Well, from our perspective, it's always beneficial to have different mindsets when it comes to either gender or neurodiversity or any of these uh, sort of aspects that may help an individual think differently to the the colleagues that might be sitting next to them. All of these are going to be equally beneficial because ultimately when you're trying to defend something, you need to be trying to defend it from multiple different mindsets. Actually, when it comes to illegal hacking or at least at a low level... The gender balance is very much orientated towards the the males, so much so that I'm only aware of, well, single digits um, of females that we've sort of interacted with around low-level hacking over the past four or five years. It could also be that uh, women are just much better at not getting absolutely, caught. Absolutely, absolutely. It could be that they're either not there or they are so good that they're not being caught at low level.
1: Stuart and Ethan Sadly, I think we're about to run out of time, but thank you both so much for joining us for what I think was a really fascinating discussion and really interesting to hear both sides of the coin. So on the one hand, how you can go about trying to prevent some of this malicious activity and really engage with the individuals involved. And on the other hand, how these kind of technical skills can actually put to good use. So thank you both for joining us, as I said. I think if people are interested in hearing a bit more about these kinds of themes, is there anywhere or any particular sources that they can find out more information?
3: Well we have a, a page on the NCA website. Um, one of the aspects of our work is is primarily around research because ultimately we need to know what we're doing is working and how best to do what we aim to achieve so if you uh, just look on the NCA website under cyber there'll be a specific prevent page and any research we do which can be publicly uh, attribute can be put up there. Similarly, for the the protect side of things and around password strength and uh, latest trends in uh, threats, you can go to the NCSC website, which is fantastic. And as Stuart mentioned earlier, it puts out a lot of public uh, research.
2: Yeah, I would actually that. The NCSC website is a great place to start. Also, for those that are interested in career choices, looking at the Crest website, there's lots of YouTube videos on there, interviewing people much younger than I on their paths into the, the, the pen testing career choice. Uh, and looking at the way that your your careers can develop. So that would be a good, good start.
1: Brilliant, thank you.
0: Thank you, yes. So as usual, we've been starved for time. Massive topic, but very little time in which to discuss it. Thanks for giving some seriously interesting insights, for exploding some of the myths that are associated with, uh, with hacking. Um, you can find myself and Louise on Twitter at uh, Lutag Tech and Hugo101 for any relevant updates. There's also one piece of interesting reading that you might like to look at, and that's Crest and the NCA recently released a report called Identify, Intervene and Inspire. So do have a look at that one.
1: Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the pod, and we look forward to joining us again next time for I for the Internet of Things.